Hi, folks, and welcome to that Star Trek podcast, your one-stop shop for all things Trek. My name is Rick, and I apologize that you had to witness that outburst. Joining me tonight as we talk about the season two, episode two, Strange New Worlds episode, Ad Astra Per Asperum, is Neek. How you doing? Hello, I'm doing well. Yay. And Chris? I can't handle the truth. <laughs> and Tom? Are you being funny? You were never funny. <laughs> and Scott? Oh, wait. <laughs> And with all of that witty repartee under the table now, or on the table, we are going to talk about the show uh, uh, that air. Uh, I already said all that stuff. It was directed by Valerie Weiss and written by Dana Horgan. Horgan? Horgan? I don't know. Um, so Horgan shows that you're ready for Jamaha room. Uh, yeah, so I'm suspecting that. The, it's H-O-R-G-A-N, probably not pronounced Horgon if she's working in Star Trek. And actually, I'm assuming that Dana is a woman. I don't know. Um, she is, yeah. Uh, I, I'm i assuming, or or Dana Horgan, Horgan is, a, is a woman. She is. Your she assumption is. is correct. Ah, okay, <laughs> good. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I do not have a scene-by-scene -scene breakdown of this episode because it really doesn't warrant one i think it's it's kind of with a with a few little exceptions mostly all in one room this is strange new worlds and maybe well discovery did a little bit of it but they never did a full courtroom episode but uh there is a long tradition of courtroom episodes in star trek and strange new worlds is joining that tradition with this episode where una chin riley is on trial for lying about being genetically modified Illyrian. Uh, so we're going to, as per tradition, go around the table here and see what people's initial thoughts of the episode are. And Neek, how about you first? I loved it. I thought it was the best episode of Strange New Worlds so far. The best episode of all new Star Trek so far. It was masterfully written it works if you take it literally it works if you take it as allegory and it was so brilliantly respectful of canon that it really makes any episode that isn't respectful of canon all the more shameful and not only did it respect canon it enhanced it we can get into that later absolutely and i i i concur 100 percent Chris. Follow that, Chris. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not as enthusiastic. I think it was an episode that was designed to appeal to me as a Star Trek fan and hit a lot of Star Trek type of buttons really, really hard and repeatedly. And um, I felt it lacked nuance in any way. At the same time, I loved watching it. But after the fact, I was just like, Mm, and we can get into that okay i also agree with you and when it's when i when it comes time to give my opinion i will uh expound on that scott uh i i really enjoyed this episode i have to agree with uh, everything that neek said um it was uh, very well put together uh one thing that i can say that neek did not say is this is absolutely an episode that makes me glad that I do not participate in or uh, or wade through the various areas of online Star Trek fandom. Because this is going to be one of those episodes where the haters are going to lose their goddamn minds. Probably. Yeah. Because it made no secret from the very beginning what allegory they were aiming for. And they leaned into it hard the entire episode, which I have zero problem with. Because I think that the, in addition to the in-universe story, the allegorical lesson that they were trying to put across in this episode is still sorely needed. And the people who react badly, the people who maintain that modern Trek in these past several years uh, has been carrying an SJW woke agenda will hold this up as 
probably their their strongest example of look we were right they're not and, wrong but and, star trek's been doing that since 1966 so. right <laughs> So an, an episode that will serve as such a lightning rod for the people who choose to throw that type of hate in its direction. That's why I'm glad that I don't really float around a lot of fan discussion uh, <clears throat> uh, groups online because I don't want to hear that garbage. I want to see great episodes of Star Trek like this and then discuss it with you guys. Roger that. And Tom. Uh, overall, enjoyed the episode. I mean, yeah, it's a courtroom procedural. We've seen plenty of those. Um, I don't know that I would quite agree with as much of the use of the word allegorical for this because it, it really seemed quite bonk bonk on the head to steal from uh, other podcasts. Um, you can say Mission Log. We like them here. <laughs> yeah. It was everything um, I could do not to say bunk bunk on the head. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. Um, I mean, some of, and I can never remember the attorney's name. Um, Samuel Cogley? She was. Oh, 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 on this one. No. Yeah. Nira? Nira. Nira, yeah. Nira. Um, I mean, she was pretty blatant. She was uh, about some of those statements and correlations. So, uh, but yeah, a good episode. It, it really established a lot. It really delved into uh, characterizations and uh, uh, I just really enjoyed that. It was missing some um, uh, Pella, but you know, we had Carol Kane introduced in the last one. We can't have her all the time. We get, too sick of her too quick so okay and rick what did you think um i agree i think this is easily the best episode of strange new worlds uh i also agree it is certainly one of the best episodes of new trek uh maybe even could be in the top 10 of of all trek uh i i was blown away by this and i was actually a little bit leery about my second viewing because I was like, it's the courtroom thing. So probably now that we know where it's all going, it might be tedious, but it is not at all. It's as mm -hmm. electrifying the second time through as it was the first. Um, and the third time through. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree. It was about as subtle as a photon torpedo to the face, but the subject but matter certainly Trek. deserves it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Trek has never exactly been, been sneaky with their messages. And, uh, I, I just, I love this one from, from start to finish. Um, I, I, it, it may be slightly heretical for me to say that while I've enjoyed Rebecca Romaine's performance as number one, uh, I, I was never overly impressed with her as an actor until tonight, until this episode, because she just knocked it out of the park. She was amazing. Uh, as was everybody. There was not a bad performance in, in the show. Uh, and the, the editing was brilliant, especially when they got to the Spock, uh, Mbenga and La'an bit where they were just kind of jumping between the three of them. That was genius. Uh, I, th there was nothing I could think of in this episode that I could complain about, except maybe, uh, the Patak or whatever his, his name was the Vulcan lawyer or prosecutor they didn't do a very good job covering up his eyebrows when they put the vulcan eyebrows <laughs> <laughs> um so i'm not really sure how i does anyone have anything they want to start off with because one of the problems with having an episode that's really good is we all you know you you the conversation kind of yeah that was that was fantastic that was cool. <laughs> you know, yeah. We don't have anything to complain about. Um, it becomes an interview on the Chris Farley show. Hey, yeah, you, you, you're you remember, you remember the scene with Pike in the in the in the mask. That that's great. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> well, I'll start by giving a shout out to like the set dressing and the costuming. It was so spot on it was such a good update to what we saw in court martial from tos mm -hmm. it was so great down to their 
the dorky little rainbow medals. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I loved it. I was and like and the their little floppy disks and all that. Like it was so cute. It was. I like that about Strange New Worlds that they keep to the the toss aesthetic. You know, they update it, but it's again. I don't want to overuse the word respectful, but that's the word I'm going to use. It's respectful to the original. Yeah. I yeah. Rather I than love cutting, the... Go ahead, Scott. Rather than cutting out those little squares out of, I assume, like little pieces of plywood and and painting them different colors, and those are the data cards. Now we've got the acrylic data cards with the uh, the etching on them for the writing. Yeah. It's it's the same device. They just look the way we can make them look now, yeah. thanks to modern television production. And they're they're nailing a lot of these uh, uh, visual bits. Um, I think the the only, not the only thing, but the the one area I particularly noticed in this episode, which I noticed last season as well a lot, is uh, I kind of suspect that William Shatner, if he's watching any of these episodes, is feeling very jealous seeing Pike's quarters versus Kirk's <laughs> cabin in TOS. I would be very surprised if Shatner was watching any of this. Yeah, but <laughs> I, we we all know whether he's watching it or not, but it's just my way of illustrating the point because Pike's cabin is dope. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. love that room. I think he's got just an entire deck, not not just a cabin. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. He's got like a Jerry Seinfeld New York City apartment where he just owns like the whole floor of a building. It's just that's that's it. <laughs> It's crazy. It's crazy. And that sometimes takes me out of it because, Rick, you've mentioned this too in Discovery. It seems like every starship is gargantuan, you know, yeah. like every, every ceiling, every ceiling is 50 feet high. And there's just these giant Starfleet emblems all over the place. And Pike's quarters are just like mid-century modern wet dream. And it's just, <laughs> you know, it it, it kind of takes the military aesthetic out of it. But at the same time, you know, um, it updates the look in a way that... Uh, dare I say it, Nick, respectful to TOS. There are some callbacks to it. So you can say, yeah, it kind of fits, kind of, but it still seems just a little too grandiose to me. At the same time, it's just, it's nice to look at <laughs> and it's got to fill, you know, the 16 by nine uh, aspect ratio. So yeah, why not do it with a whole bunch of real estate, right? Although the, the, both the, the hardware wonk and the technical director side of me, really has a problem with an open flame both on the set and on the ship <laughs> <laughs> one other real standout i mean everybody did a great job like i said but one really amazing standout to me was uh uhura when when she refused to do what every other series in the history of star trek has done which is open up people's personal logs um her conversation with with La'an, where she says, you know, you're my boss, you're my friend, you're my mentor. This is an illegal order and I'm not going to do it. Was and and the way she did it, because that takes that takes a lot of a lot of uh chutzpah to not only stand up to your superior, but also someone who has been your 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 mentor, your guide, your friend. Um, and I re and and did it in a way that really seemed believable. Mm -hmm. it, it was nice to see i this this episode gives me questions about laon and i suspect the answers are going to be whatever the story needs dictate but at this point we now have finally established i think on screen that she is a descendant of khan nuni and singh yeah they've been saying that since the get-go yeah. that was established they, last season it was okay i i just remember reading it and press things but i don't remember seeing it you know expressly uh spoken about on screen Same. but regardless now you know fresh in my mind and they're talking about the enhancements about the augments and does laon carry Khan's genetic superiority has it been has it been diluted over time with uh you know just being bred out because of the centuries that have passed what's what's her deal because if she comes from genetically enhanced stock so to speak then how is she allowed in Starfleet and well, exactly. I, I'm, I'm wondering so where, where is the line here 
That's it. Like maybe I'm misremembering, but I, I feel like in the first season it was clearly established that like I don't know if she's like directly uh, descended from uh, Khan or if it was someone else in that family, but that she was bullied as a child for being related to him for having mm-hmm. that name. But that she herself no is not augmented, obviously, because then she wouldn't be allowed in Starfleet. You know, it begs the question of like, why would her family keep that name? Like, if your name is Hitler, you change your name. Mm, yeah. yeah. So that's so that's a bit that is a bit bizarre. I can only assume at some point they're going to go into more detail about her. I mean, her I, yeah, I would hope so. And then you, I also think about. I think I heard an episode of Radiolab five ten years ago, where they revealed the fact that. If anybody of us, any of us mostly takes like a genetic test, 2% of our DNA is going to be from Genghis Khan. I mean, that's how mm-hmm. pervasive, you know, his influence was when he was like a dictator, monarch, strongman, whatever the hell he was in history. But could it be that kind of thing where, okay, well, it's such a distant memory to be almost apocryphal. Like, who cares? You know, it's like tracing royal lineages. It wouldn't matter to anybody. Nobody would seem related unless you had, you know, titles and land at stake. Is mm-hmm. it is it sort of that kind of thing where in name, yes, she comes from this genetically engineered uh Yeah, background. because I mean it was yeah. it's centuries ago, right? Right, exactly. Exactly. So so indeed, even if like even if his children had his uh enhancements some somehow, like it would have been diluted by the time we get to her for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, we've yeah. I mean, we've seen her and I, you know, I, I haven't rewatched season one. But did it seem, does it seem like she is preternaturally strong, like in fights or stuff, or is it just? No. I mean, listen, if Chapel can knock out a Klingon in one punch, yeah, yeah. Like, everybody's preternaturally strong. Exactly. <laughs> That's the thing yeah. with Star Trek is that they always have people displaying Kung Fu or whatever fighting <laughs> abilities that don't necessarily make sense. So that's sort of something you have to sort of take with a grain of salt regardless she's no more supernaturally strong than every other character is supernaturally strong when when nana visitor can knock a klingon out cold with a doubled up uh (laughs) axe chop just to the center of their back the meatiest part of their armor and body yeah we're yeah we you can't really uh quantify strength unless they are making it very very clear this is and you know an enhanced or uh or super strong character like a vulcan or an android now i'm gonna have to step back and contradict myself because while i do not think nana could do that i totally buy that kira could do that oh yeah that's just kira. she's badass <laughs> so, kira could do that anyway yeah the i think the only thing in this episode and and disappointed is really too strong of a word i think i just i would have liked to have seen a, l- a little more closure to La'an's search for how how the information got to Starfleet. Um because that I mean that that whole you know when, once we knew that it was that it was Una herself that that outed herself that whole storyline just became moot but I would have it might have been interesting to have La'an actually find out just before Una and you know fessed up. Yeah, I mean, I thought the actress did a good job with her reaction shots, which oh, she yeah. does find out. Yeah. Because, you know, she even though she didn't have any dialogue at that point, you could still see in her face that she was being affected by this information. Mm-hmm. So, you know, props to her for doing what she could. Yeah, and it, and it was fine the way it was. Uh, I, I just think, you know, that might have been slightly better. But, you know, that didn't even occur to me until the second watch through, so... It's it is a bit interesting that she she would assume it had to do with her log. Yeah. Like assuming mm, but I guess I get I mean it was about her own her guilt and her own internalized bigotry and all that. So like I get it, but that's quite a leap still to be like, you know, if you bitched about someone behind their back and then something bad happens to them like oh no it's because of me like that's like it's quite the leap and it's a little uh narcissistic on lawn's part but okay well Well, the whole the whole personal log thing in star trek has always kind of one of the reasons why i like 
in the pale moonlight the ds9 episode about cisco basically tricking the romulans into the dominion war is how the whole thing is a personal log and then the end he's like nah delete that um i i I guess I've I've tried be doing you know journaling at various points in my life and it lasts about three days and then and then I stop doing it. But maybe if you're the type of person who is you know very devoted or, or not devoted isn't the right word but very diligent about diarying or journaling, then the personal log may be that the equivalent of it in in the Starfleet. Yeah, era. absolutely, it is. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe she felt guilty for recording that. But also, for some you know reason or another, couldn't bring herself to delete it, and then this happens, and she's like, "Oh God, they must have heard what I said." Um, yeah, no, I, I get that, but like to sort of assume it's her log and like not one of the other hundreds of people on the ship, like it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, it, it, and and that was like the only real weak point in the episode for me was Laon's hunt for the for who turn who who did it kind of just went nowhere. Or maybe superior breeding uh, brings superior guilt. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's the hubris thing going on. But this is someone that she sees not only as a mentor, but a savior. And mm -hmm. the closest thing, the only thing that she can point to and say, that's my family. And even the, the barest hints of I might have said something that I don't know how it might have gotten out there. It, maybe it didn't get out there, but it could be my fault. I mean, think of how crushing that must be internally, even though the external factors, you know, they kind of, they're kind of against that. But I mean, it was either I was an egg sack or I met her and God damn it. I met her, you know, it, it it's, she's, I, I can see where she's really twisted up about it. So. Yeah. Yeah. She, she might have wondered you know, now that people know about this, maybe it was someone else on the ship. Maybe they recorded a log and maybe that became the evidence. But she, the only log that she knows mentioned uh, Una and her augmentation was her own. So she's going to focus on that one because that's the, the, the one thing that, that she can confirm, that she can be absolutely certain would have been damaging to Una. Maybe there were three dozen and, other people that did logs, but she doesn't know whether they did or not. She knows that she did. So it, to, to me, it made sense that she was really fixating on her own log because that's one solid potential evidence that she knows of. Well, that may mm -hmm. also be why she wanted to look at the other personal logs was to see if yeah. anyone else. Yes, Tom? Yeah. You know, well, keep in mind that she was also off the ship when, um, when Una was arrested. So she just she came back and gets the story in the scuttlebutt of oh yeah they came and arrested una and took her off and they found out she's an augment so now you know all this is out she's probably going oh crap oh crap oh crap oh crap oh crap you know it was it, my log was there i said it everyone else knows so not only did she get arrested but her secrets out to the whole crew and you know it probably feels a lot of that um uh, betrayal and the fact that she's catching up to it. You know, maybe it wouldn't have happened if she was still on the ship, that sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah, I hear you. Rampant speculation again. <laughs> well, I know there have been plenty of times in my life where I, I said or did something that I thought was a huge mistake, or and I was like, oh, this person is now going to lose all respect for me. And then, you know, find out they didn't hear it or didn't remember it or didn't notice it or, you know, or whatever. Yeah, that, that's such a human thing, too. We always augment our own flaws. Above ah, all. Augment. Ah. <laughs> I didn't even realize I was doing that. Wow. It's just like every time I get off mic with you guys, I'm thinking no, no, they're never going to have me back. But then, then it's, it's, I guess it's OK. But no, and that's. I like that because it's one of the many human centered things that we saw in this episode. I mean, Pike going to this planet to find this lawyer. I don't know. Yeah. It would have been interesting to see a backstory about how he knew about this. Uh, I'm sorry. I want to say a Lauren, but I know that's, that's kind oh, of Illy Illyrian Illyrian. 
How did he know about this Lyrian colony? How did he know about this specific person who was a lawyer? Did it just so happen that um, well, Una I'm, and her were friends? Like what, I, what? I'm assuming that Una has told Pike her life story, and maybe she, prior to this, never told him all the details about the Illyrian stuff. But obviously, at this point, she would have told, I guess, you know, like in last episode, or the first episode of the season where um, Pike and Una are talking about she, her, they're obviously talking about Nira. And so presumably, you know, we jump in on that conversation after Una has explained her whole childhood and, you know, and the, the falling out because he knew there was a falling out between Una and Nira, but he didn't know exactly what it was. So she obviously gave him enough information to be, this is a, an old friend. She's Illyrian like me. She lives in the toxic nebula. She could help, but she's not taking my calls. And then Pike takes it from there. So uh, I only saw it once uh, about five days ago. Can refresh my memory on that that character's name? The the, the Nira. The, Nira. Thank you. This to me was a TOS level stroke of genius, but it, it did TOS one better. I could not see anything demonstrably different about Nira. She seemed to be a conventional looking, attractive humanoid female. And the fact that she was different and persecuted, it's for something that we can't even see. And it's almost like, well, she's white on the right. You should be, you should be black on the right. You know, he's not one of the Illyrians who is visibly augmented. So at a certain point in the, in the dialogue, she says, she sort of, I can't even remember if it's in the context of being accusatory towards Una or just speaking in more general terms, but she says that, you know, some people couldn't pass and then others could, but chose not to. And so she's very pointedly talking about herself. She's like, yeah, I can pass as human, but I choose not to because that's unethical is basically the implication there. And I thought and she said, she I thought she said something like some of us couldn't hide it. And I'm looking, yeah. well, what, what is there to hide? But maybe it's not something that I'm able to see. Maybe that's the whole fucking point, you know? Right. So yeah, anyway, be, because yeah. indeed none of those people on the planet seemed to have any like visible signs other than, I guess they glow anytime they get a cold because of their immune systems. Um, but yeah, it, it, I, I thought it was clear through the dialogue that Nero was saying that, you know, some people it's visible and then others just choose not to pass. Another very deliberate uh, choice in dialogue. Yeah. Which they're doing yeah. throughout the entire episode. Yeah. Now, I know that traditionally the Emmy Academy, whatever they're called, ignores Star Trek for anything other than technical awards. But it would be so great if this episode were to get not at least nominated. I I know yeah. I'm not going to hold my breath, but yeah. uh... <laughs> it's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it was. This goes back to I think also about uh, what and Rick, you you suss this out too, Tom. I think you said bonk bonk on the head. Um, it was amazingly Star Trek, but almost too much so. It was so heavy-handed in its message, where I don't think that that's unwarranted. I think that that's just fine. But even as a Trekkie, I felt like, okay, I, now I'm being pandered to. I mean, it was just so strident and so in your face, where I know it has to be to um, you know a certain segment of the population to, sit, to normalize something that's been normal throughout history. That is now just, you know, somehow coming to the social consciousness for us, but it still seemed a little bit much. And I don't know, I, I, I guess I can point to certain things. It all works still. So I don't, it, I'm trying to figure out like what my problem is. I, I felt it was too much. I felt it was heavy handed, but I felt that that was entirely necessary and justified for everything they wanted to do. So it's like the artist in me and the writer in me is struggling with the the social justice warrior in me and the truck fan in me. I I don't know where the line is. I feel like they crossed it, but they didn't. I'm very confused. If this had been like, you know, Turnabout Intruder, where people are just, you know, standing in in conference rooms screaming at each other. I think that's obviously because Janice Lester is hysterical female. Okay. 
I mean, come on. I no, I get I get what you're saying. Yeah. I think I think it would have been heavy-handed, but I think the the genius of this episode of the writing of this is setting this in a courtroom where this sort of uh absolutely unvarnished in your face uh uh dialogue not only is acceptable, it's required. And so they didn't have to hide behind any kind of smokescreen of let's make this comfortable for people. In fact, it was exactly the opposite. It was, you know, she even said it, you know, you, you all don't want to think about the people that make you uncomfortable. And if that's not hugely relevant right now, I don't know what else could be. I think it, it, it took me a while of rolling it over in my head before I, I came to this realization, but I was feeling, <clears throat> particularly during the the scenes in the courtroom where it was, uh, it, it was speeches. It was, it you know, very very clear the message that the writers were trying to put across in in the uh, particular scenes. Uh, you know what lesson that the show is trying to teach people overall, and there were moments where I was getting uncomfortable, and I I couldn't understand why for a while, but I think. Uh, that the reason I was shifting my seat a little bit was not because I felt called out. I didn't feel like I was put on the spot. I think the discomfort came from knowing that there are still so many people that need to learn what this episode is trying to say. I it's, let, yeah. it, it's still so much of a problem that we need television shows like this to put it in big banner letters, loud and proud. This is what we're saying. This is the lesson to learn. And it's just just knowing that it's still a lesson that needs to be taught is galling to me. And I think that's what was making me uncomfortable. Not I wasn't uncomfortable because of what the show was saying. I was uncomfortable due to the fact that the show has to say it. I, I thank you, Scott, because that helped me crystallize like where I can't find the line here, but it could have been more artful and less declarative. But that doesn't diminish the importance of the message. The message still got out there. It's just in a way that I felt was a little bit heavy-handed. That's all. Mm. And and that just comes down to I I think personal taste of how how do we want yeah. particular stories presented to us? I, yeah, exactly. Doing do the way they did is is as valid as your hypothetical uh, dif- different take on it, L- less heavy-handed, more more artful way. Both valid as long as they're saying what they're saying the the message is important and the fact that the message is so necessary is is what bothers me and i've seen other shows where they are more artful and they should have been more declarative because now you're hedging so yeah it's a fine line it really is Mm -hmm. one thing i was very impressed that they didn't do even though i wanted them to do it um but it would have totally broken with canon was solving the Illyrian or the 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 genetic modification problem, you know, pulling a, a David Lynch's Dune ending where it's all better now and it's going to rain on the planet. Um, oh, know. I love that they didn't solve it. I yeah. love that. It makes the episode so tragic mm-hmm. that, you know, Una and Nira part ways and they're so pleased. And Nira is so hopeful that she's like, oh, this is, you know, this is the first chink in the armor and, and I've made strides, but we as viewers know that no, you haven't. This isn't going to solve anything. Because a hundred years it, later, it's still a yeah, problem that is addressed still, exactly. in much the same way. Yeah. And so that to me makes the episode all the more brilliant that yeah. the characters were so pleased, but we as the audience know that like, doesn't matter that you've said this message because it's still a problem just as in real life. The, yep. the first time they did this episode in the 60s, it was a problem and it's still a problem today. Hmm. And that's the whole point. It had to end on that tragedy. I think it was interesting because I got echoes in this episode of uh, Azad Boor in Star Trek VI talking about the Federation being a humans only club. Because the sole, the sole uh, basis for the Federation's illegalization of genetic modification is because Earth had a problem 200 years ago. Yeah. And it ignores all the other 
races or societies that haven't had a problem with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the Tellerite and the Vulcans aren't like, well, you know, we didn't, <laughs> we're cool with it. What's your, um, yeah. And this episode, you know, flat out just kept referring to the eugenics wars. Can we, can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. Because I feel like the eugenics wars are either put up for story purposes, conveniently highlighted or conveniently ignored because in the last season, I think it was maybe the first episode or the second episode where Pike goes down and gives that impassioned speech about how the second civil war happens. And then it was World War Three, And then there was Armageddon. And then there was the Federation. No mention at all of the eugenics wars. Voyager you goes sure? back to 1996. No mention of all. The eugenics war should have either have decimated the planet at that point or been still raging. No mention at all. It's just evil Ehrlich in his jeans and his, uh, you know, his blazer. And then all of a sudden they're talking about it in DS9. They're talking about it now in Discovery this season. I'm sorry, in Strange New Worlds this season, where they didn't really acknowledge it last season. So did they happen? Did they not happen? It's a very inconvenient truth of Star Trek that there were eugenics wars, it seems like, because it doesn't jive with our history. Star Trek's history diverged from our history somewhere, I'm going to say, after 1969, because Kirk did say we we had the first moon landing in 69 uh during the was it gary seven episode maybe i'm not sure yeah. but yeah um but after that all bets are off and i i i know they're trying to make it relevant to current audiences to say that hey we're all this is all of us this is our future but trek history does not have to jive with our history to the point where we have lived past significantly lived past where the divergences happened in their history yet they they conveniently ignore that until they don't and in this episode they just suddenly didn't and it drives me nuts i'm, I'm former canonista comes out in me and it, it it just makes me crazy because eugenics wars are such an interesting pivot point in the history of the trek franchise and that they they take it or leave it as they please drives it, it drives me up up a wall well the, the problem with that is that in 1967 wait no space seed was a first season episode wasn't it anyway 66, 66 yeah. um nobody had the slightest clue that Star Trek would still be around 30 years later. So they set I, them I, in 1996. I don't give a crap but that's about not that. The in, problem. In, in their 1996, this is what happened. No, I agree completely, Chris. Exactly. Yeah. All the writers ever had to do was just stick to what had been established and then mm -hmm. just be okay with having Star Trek history diverge from real life history. And you're right. And the, the 90s shows were hesitant to do that. They they wanted to have whatever their time travel episodes be in the 90s and have no mention of the eugenics wars and and that's where the mistakes were made and so that's why i really appreciate episodes like this one where they go back to the original mm. canon and they say yes this happened and so you know you you can't blame strange new worlds for this you have to blame you know voyager for it you have to blame tng yeah. you have to blame all the the series that that no, decided I not to acknowledge and, and, the previous canon. And or or acknowledge it and didn't. I mean, because in Enterprise we had the fourth season that that played heavily on the idea of the eugenics wars with all of the, the Terra Prime stuff. But then we have Carpenter Street where they go back to the 21st century that is yeah. apparently completely unchanged from our 21st century, right? Yeah. So it, it, again, it's it, every series is guilty of it. But as, yeah. a, as a fan who really enjoys the idea of eugenics wars because I like the idea of Khan and space, it, it I, yeah, it's a sticking point. It's what, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. like so many other things in Star Trek. Yeah, they're, they're, that's not the only example of something that, that is, uh, yeah, annoyingly inconsistent. But uh, there you have it. I've, I've always, I've, not always. I've had this idea, and I don't know if it's my own headcanon or whether I, you know, I, I started reading the, the, the baby con books and couldn't get past the second chapter of them calling him Noonie. Uh, it's just a little, <laughs> little too reminiscent of Annie. Um, <laughs> but I, I. This read is somewhere. so wizard, Annie. Yeah, <laughs> I, I again, I don't know where this idea came from, but somewhere 
this idea got into my head that the eugenics wars happened in, you know, they said it, it was a, it was a European thing. Or and Asia that, is and, what and I, Asian, I thought. Oh, you're right. Sorry. Asian a, from, yeah, they said, yeah, Asian and middle and the middle East. And what the, the, it was that most of the world didn't know it was happening until it was over. Yeah, I don't buy that at all. Political, and yeah, I I don't know where I came, where that idea came, where I got it from. Okay, if you have a quote, this is a quote: "A strong man who ruled one third of the world's population." It ain't no secret political war. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) I I don't. I'm yeah. I'm just somewhere. I got that headcanon. And I, I was like, well, all right. I never got the impression that the rest of the world didn't know about it because like those of us who were fans of Voyager, the way we had canoned them going to the nineties and not, not finding the eugenics wars. You're like, oh, I guess the eugenics wars are happening in Asia. And then in LA, you know, they're aware of the wars, but they're still living their lives the same way we today live our lives. even though there's a war in Ukraine. Yeah. That, that mm-hmm. makes more sense than mine. That's, yeah. I guess I saw more of a like a ravaged dystopia, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, yeah, we all did. We all yeah. did, and then we had to headcanon because <laughs> that's what we do as fans. We yeah, we yeah. headcanon yeah. our own nitpicks because we need to sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> that's we, what gin is for. <laughs> we we need some we need something that is more palatable than oh the writers just didn't try hard enough. Yeah, or they, well, that's or, good. Or, or they didn't try at all. <laughs> well, and, uh, yeah, and I think yeah. Tom also uh, was onto something with his nonverbal point of making the the <laughs> cash cash hand gesture, because even if the production staff on the uh, late eighties to nineties uh, Trek series, even if they had wanted to work in the eugenics war somewhere, to create an alternate a a a star trek timeline rather than our own reality timeline to uh depict the eugenics war (coughs) excuse me (coughs) to depict the eugenics wars that would have been a whole lot of production budget to create a war-torn uh war-torn earth in that's a flimsy excuse you don't have to portray it You, you can just talk about it happening off screen and you can you know, they didn't have to time travel to this point. They could have time traveled to whatever point. Like, yeah. I, well, I think that, that was my point with the gesture. Like Sorry, say that, again? That was, my point. That, that was my point with the, the cash stuff is that's why they traveled to that point in time because it was cheap. Just like TOS traveled to uh, the 60s, you know, yeah. The okay Corral, yeah. Well, or, or, or to 1984 or, San Francisco. To to what yeah. whatever whatever time frame that there was a convenient backlot set already in place yeah, that they could just exactly. walk over to and use. Yeah, I, I also <laughs> think that maybe with Voyager because um, the the production schedule on those on those series were so tight that it may very well be that they were you know two weeks ahead of uh, you know away from principal photography and someone went. Um, you know, the eugenics wars are supposed to be happening during this. And, you know, Iris Stephen Bear was like, yeah, but we don't have time to worry about that anymore. <laughs> yeah, I can't well, speak obviously. to Voyager. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if anybody in the Voyager's writer, writer's oh, rooms were Star Trek fans. So. Well, yeah, Voyager. Well, again, I haven't, I haven't seen, I've only seen bits and pieces of Voyager. So that could be my bias coming out. So no, no shade on Voyager fans or Voyager itself. I'm going through my rewatch. I will render a verdict when I've seen all seven seasons. <laughs> well, Voyager had some... I heard some shade in there. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying that for Nick's benefit. <laughs> we, we can't work the eugenics wars into this two-part time travel Voyager episode because we're spending too much time and money getting Ed Begley Jr. Okay, Evil well, so early. whatever. Okay, Hello. okay, we're done with that. Back to this episode. There is never too much talk about Ed Begley Jr. Nick. <laughs> and I, I realized I was actually thinking about the DS9 episode where they went back to to the uh the, the well, bell rebellion but that's a good yeah. point when, when were the bell riots like i think the whatever like, getting we're getting close to them i feel like <laughs> yeah they i think yeah. i think yeah. they were like if, last if year. we haven't passed them already yeah or or, or next year maybe. i think they were 2024 but yeah um 
Yeah. So, I mean, so do we now travel back to 2024 without bell rides because it's convenient for the viewers of today? I I would hope not, sir. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Um, but but so back to the... To, <laughs> what, what are we to the courtroom? <laughs> so... So, you know, back to my my point about being it, it being respectful to canon or I guess to TOS canon. Um, what I really liked is that I, I felt like the result of this trial actually made um, Dr. Bashir's storyline more interesting. Because yeah. I always felt it was a little weak the way they sort of hand waved Dr. Bashir's augmentations. And they're just like, oh, well, I guess he's a good officer. And so we'll let him continue to serve. And they sort of made him a special case. But now we know that there was already precedent for that sort of action. And so mm -hmm. it makes it all the more believable that they allowed Bashir to continue serving. So I thought that was brilliantly done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They, they did take care to wrap up this case on Strange New Worlds in a way that says, you have proven yourself to be a good officer and you have requested or asylum and we're going to grant it, but we can't change our stance on augments overall. Mm -hmm. We have to continue to say, no, 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 no. Well, here's the thing. Yeah. But we, we'll make an exception for you. So when we get to DS9, they're making another exception, as long as they get their pound of flesh in the form of Bashir's dad. Yeah. And, and we found the TOS style loophole. I mean, the prime directive is the prime directive until it isn't, because it mm -hmm. only applies to living, growing society's bones. Really? Yeah. I guess so. I mean, that's that's how and, and they even they even made a nod to that with April's interventions in uh, like three or four different cultures in this to prove that point, which is, uh, as as Nick has pointed out, um, very respectful to Trek canon and sort of that whole cowboy diplomacy feel of TOS, you know. Yeah, the long-standing canon that you can assume that every starship captain has broken the prime directive at least once because they thought it was the right thing to do <clears throat> which it normally is and it really makes a person wonder why does the prime directive persist if it is so routinely broken sans consequences i well I, maybe it, there's like a guiding star there like an ideal like you know because if it wasn't there, yeah, if that, if that guideline wasn't there, then people would just be willy-nilly. I mean, if, if people are interfering with societies as often as they are with that law in place, imagine how crazy it would be if there <laughs> wasn't that directive. Right. you got to think we're seeing, like, again, the cowboys. Everybody else is pretty straight edge about it. They're like, oh, no, prime directive, turn around. Let's put the cones around the planet. We got to go, <laughs> you know? But, uh, yeah, Let that we, only, we only see the exceptional stories, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure. <laughs> yeah, we we don't see the Captain Estebans of. <laughs> Thank you. I was just getting ready to say Esteban. <laughs> Very nice. Or to be Captain's Esteban. Anyway, um, so uh, I think we can we can wrap up this discussion of the show unless anyone has anything else they'd like to bring up. Um, I think it's it. You know, Tom. Uh, uh, talking about the canon and the respect for canon that uh, we've said before, I really liked the throwback to the short trucks and bringing yeah. that in there. Uh, mm -hmm. Spock's comments about Una and you know the Gilbert and Sullivan. It fits even if you haven't seen it. I mean, you might question where did where did that come from, but you know you can easily assume it was off camera. Mm -hmm. um, it's just real nice throwing that that little homage in there or that easter egg yeah um the and also um the law books you know and neek's recap touched on that also with that uh cogly uh, reference <laughs> did i say that right yes um, yeah yeah that's him yeah i also loved the um even though, again, it's it, it, but they they devoted the whole scene to it. But the fact that in TOS, Mabinga was the Vulcan specialist yeah. on the ship, and he could read that conversation from across the galley, 
And he got it exactly right because he knows the subtle cues in the Vulcan body language. And, uh, you know, Ortegas is just like, huh? And then Spock comes up himself and says, I regret you had to witness that. I mean, it was it was brilliant. It was. And now I'm getting to the Chris Farley territory. Hey, you remember that? <laughs> but, well, you know, that 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 reminded me of the of the Vulcan in Lower Decks. How she's like, I really don't think yeah. we should do this. You are out of control. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Calm yeah. down. <laughs> I, it, this, I, I, this part of the discussion reminds me that during that particular scene, I was getting a bit bothered by Ortegas and her uh, pretty, you know, not terribly well hidden disdain for Vulcans overall. I, even Spock, a crewmate, someone who serves on the bridge with her every day. She was taking his orders just last week when he was in charge of the ship. And she's just lumping him in with all Vulcans as being officious and uh and utterly bereft of emotions including compassion and just being all around dick bags and yeah this is our, she, our she's painting hint. spock with that same brush that's that's not cool ortegas no but but this is our second hint that ortegas <clears throat> is secretly racist because mm -hmm. the episode last season um the one that was like a remake of um balance oh of terror balance of balance that was exactly. um, a quality yeah. of mercy so, yeah yeah, she she played that role of the the person on the bridge who's like kill them all, you know. And I, I'm looking forward to the episode that I've I've heard is coming uh, that's going to focus on her, and we'll get a presumably we'll get some of her background, and we'll learn a bit more about why she does have these prejudices. I'm assuming it's because of her trauma with the war. And I I hope it tempers her some. Well, 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 what? I'm sorry, Borg, war, war. A war. war. Oh, war. war. I thought you said the Borg. I, I was like, oh, they're no. going to break the... Oh, my God. I thought Voyager <laughs> broke cannon with the... Anyway. No, no I heard that I heard she was thing. in the war with the Klingons. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and Enterprise which is also break cannon just... with the Borg. They they had a good out because of Star Trek. No. Uh, yeah. First, first contact. contact. Yeah. 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 I like that one. But uh, Ortegas is... I'm just going to say, she's my least favorite character. The least interesting character. I'm... It, it would do the series well in my eyes to have an episode that somewhat fleshes her out because right now she's just sort of like a an aside she's a snark machine there's there's not a lot going on there except for the fact that she has some kind of relationship with pike so i'd welcome an episode that at least gives me something to cling on to and not just say okay we got to get past the ortega cling on cling on <laughs> 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 All right, we're done. <laughs> oh, and I thought of you, Chris, when when Pike said, "Oh boy." Well, you didn't think of me. Think of well, I got the wrong one on, but thank you, Scott. Uh, I just showed my quantum leap shirt, uh, Scott Madison design. Anyway, so um, okay, folks. Something with Ortegas. Go ahead. Sorry, um, Chris said he wants to see an episode fleshing her out a little bit more. Uh, I think we need to see something where she has a consequence. So far, she hasn't had really any consequences to either her actions, her words, etc. Uh, I almost I, I thought it would have been played off uh, comedically, but that she was almost going to get that consequence in that scene in the, in the mess hall where she's doing this conversation and Spock stands up and walks towards him and he apologizes, but I almost thought we'd hear a, oh, and by the way, and repeats something back or, or corrects something that she had said because they're Vulcans. They could probably hear her across the. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the I was hall, kind of so. I was kind of waiting for that, too. For the, you know, we heard every word you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. but some kind of consequence, I think I think it could be a, a very good uh, dramatic addition that something she says, something she does, just her cavalier attitude is just, you know, a gib smack to the back of the head to her, if not just, <laughs> you know, right in the face. So, yeah, or, or at least give it some context because, you know, if we're in the TOS timeline, a cavalier attitude is actually something to be lauded. That's how you become captain, apparently. But give me some workable framework. Uh, workable framework. Okay. Anyway, you guys get what I'm, yeah, mm -hmm. what I'm getting at. You guys get what, I, okay, I'm done. Get what I'm getting at, workable <laughs> framework. I think I've spoken too much. We, we can smell what you're cooking. Points made. <laughs> <laughs>
It's okay. interesting to me that you all hate Ortega so much. I don't I hate her. I hated her. Oh, I, I, said, I, I actually said, enjoy her. <laughs> I, I just think she's the least interesting character. That's all. If my, I said my, yeah. hate before, I don't uh, know if I did. My but. problem with the character is just she's she's been kind of one note so far. And I agree. I think yeah. I'd like to see some some explanation of of why why she is the way she is, because she stands out so differently from everybody else on the ship. Not necessarily in a bad way. It's just so constant that, you know, what is this coping mechanism she's using? Uh, or is she just the Bill Murray of the ship? <laughs> Yeah, I, I I noticed that that Chris said least favorite, which I I didn't take as hate, but I can also understand why it may come across as hate because most of what we have to say about Ortegas is more along lines of criticism rather than rather than praise. And, yeah, and I would say least favorite is code for most annoying. <laughs> so yeah, I'm just trying to you know be diplomatic, but I, again, I, Nick, she sees right through me. So <laughs> I, I think thus far, it's just a consequence of the writing that she's been given, which uh, from the indications that we've had, we will get a, an episode that focuses on her a bit more. So hopefully that will add some depth to the character and it'll make a little bit more sense. Well, of course, of course it's the writing. I mean, I'm, I am absolutely not in any way criticizing the actress at all. I think she's doing a fine job. And thank you for pointing that out, Scott, because when I say least favorite, I mean, Kai Wynn is my least favorite character <laughs> in DS9, but I fucking love Louise Fletcher. I mean, she is amazing in that role. It's the great, one of the greatest villains of all Star Trek. So yeah. So maybe I'll just say the most annoying from now on and just not, not hedge, you know? <laughs> So, so are you, you're saying you don't like Kai Wen? I hate Kai Wen. <laughs> I but love you hate to her, hate as her. In because she's such a good villain, or like you don't want to have that character on your screen. No, I want her. I want her there, and I don't want her there because she's screwing everything up. But she's yeah. she's the worst. But she's the best. He, he <laughs> okay, hate, yeah. He, yeah. He hates her the way we are all supposed to hate her. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, she's gonna blow up a school and blame it on somebody else for political gain. She's the worst. But yeah, Louise Fletcher delicious. is amazing. Yeah. yeah, she's awful. She's the worst. I mean, yeah. Ortega's is just annoying. <laughs> okay, so yeah. Okay, before we <laughs> before we we wrap this up, there is something I want to I want to bring up that was announced yesterday that I find very disturbing. Oh, yeah. uh, Star Trek Prodigy has been canceled, and not because of viewership, not because of you know the normal reasons shows are canceled. But as part of this new trend in studio executives of taking underperforming shows and shutting or movies and shutting them down and taking a tax write off from them. Um, that's what happened to Batwoman. The, the, the principal photography was done, but none of the pre-production was done yet. And uh, there was a, a shuffle with the, uh, the administration and the new people in charge went, nope, we're not going to finish this movie. We're just going to write it off as a failure. Um, oh, you you mean you mean the you mean the Batgirl movie? Oh, Bat, was it Batgirl? Yeah, oh, it was Batwoman. Batwoman. It was a CW series. Batgirl was the uh, HBO Max movie. Oh, okay. Uh, well, one of the Bat people, <laughs> um, and that's what's happened to, to uh, Prodigy. Now, I was not a huge fan of Prodigy, um, but I really enjoyed that it was there and what it was doing. Um, the second season is almost done with post-production. So they are, they are shopping around for another network to air it. So there's a chance that we will see season two, uh, but Paramount Plus or whoever is the, the, the studio making this stuff will not be doing any more Prodigy. That is so weird to me because yeah. it's already done. Uh, just a little post-production. They can just throw it up there. Paramount wanted to position itself as the one place where you could get Trek. They they canceled all the once all the contracts expired with the other streaming services. They 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 greedily grasped it all back. So they put it behind their paywall, and now they're saying, okay, but we have this new Trek that there's a certain market for. Some people must be interested in this, but eh, we're just going to let it go. I. I can't understand the logic with that, especially if it's almost done. 
like you said, Rick, maybe it's just tricky finances and and writing stuff off. And I I read that same thing too. It just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I don't, I don't understand it. And and this is also the same reasoning of why they're cutting disco short after its next season, instead of, you know, I, it, it had the viewership to go on and, you know, do probably seven seasons, but they're killing it in, in their fifth. Yeah, but on with streaming channels, it's not like with cable. It's not like channels that have ads. Um, there's it, the amount of viewers doesn't affect how much money the show makes. It doesn't matter if it has a million viewers or one. Like if it's it's not going to make money on a streamer. Yeah, and so they could make money if they shop it out to someone else and someone else buys it. But to have it on their own platform, that's not going to make them any money. So why would they do that? I mean, all the streamers are now. It, it's like we had this. We had I don't know. It was like a a ten year period of like peak TV, where we had all these streamers coming out with really good artistic content, and they were getting investors because they were you know being told that the you know. You know, we've got growth and there's promise, but now all the investors are realizing, I'm saying all this based on articles I've read, Mm -hmm. all the investors are now realizing, wait a second, we're not actually making any money. And they're like, cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it. So even shows that have already been completely produced, it's cheaper to just cut it. They they don't have the money to air these things because they're not making money off of these shows. Surreal, just surreal. Yeah, it's it's a business like everything else. Yeah, no, no, one hundred percent. It's, it's yeah, a business. Yeah. So R.I.P. Prodigy. Yeah, yeah. Or you know, arise again in some other platform. I mean, but- I hope we get to see the second season because I I know. Well, I won't speak for everyone. Rick, you said you weren't a huge fan. I was. I thought it was a good show. I I I don't think it was a bad show. It just it just didn't you know it, I we watched every episode, but that's one of the reasons why I wasn't on the, 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 you know, on the, the talking about it because I, I, it, it just didn't speak to me. And well, I mean, yeah, you're not the target demo. Yeah, I'm not, not at all. But, but the flip side of that, I was the same guy. Like I didn't, uh, what is this? It's a cartoon for kids. And I actually enjoyed it much more than I thought I would. And I became much more invested in it than I did in like disco. So it's like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm that outlier that they might have pulled in or, but you know, there are not enough of me. So. Well, we were also that side demographic for it. You know, the, the Star Trek fans that are going to watch it just because it's Star Trek, but I think prodigy was really positioned to get a different demographic that it does. I mean, get the kids and it's, it's a totally different, different side of an audience here. Um, so I think it's a shame that they're canceling it because they're going to, you know, potentially lose out on that younger demographic that they, you know, that's not going to be watching uh, Discoveries or Picard. Hmm. Yeah, my daughter liked the show. Yeah. It, it's the younger demographic that once they get to be a little older than the target demographic for Prodigy, they get shown Star Trek and they get shown Star Wars and they will gravitate towards Star Wars because that's the one that's more exciting. Yeah. That's the one that that's more attention grabbing. It's much more difficult to get a younger audience interested in Star Trek because it's much more uh, character based and, uh, and, and, and story based rather than Star Wars, which is action based. Yeah. Can I, can I give a Chris analogy? I grew up listening to rock and roll. I love classic rock. Uh, you guys know I can quote classic rock stats ad nauseum to, to your chagrin most times. Wasn't until I was in my 30s that I discovered opera. Star Trek is opera. Yeah. It's, it's something that you didn't know that you needed until you discover it and you learn to love it. And then entire universes open up to you. So I don't think that they need to go for a younger demographic because Star Trek was never about getting young people in. It was about telling intelligent science fiction stories, not just black hat, white hat, Star Wars bullshit. So that's where I stand on it. I I feel like it's a misguided thing to say, let's get the younger viewers. You're not going to come to Star Trek until you're ready to come to Star Trek. 
It's just as simple oh, as that. A lot of us were children when we started watching Star Trek and loved it. I, hmm, I that's got what, okay. No, you're right. That's you're why right. we're exceptional. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I feel like this this whole thing of like focusing Star Trek to a specific demographic and making a show for that demographic is misguided. I came to Star Trek. I hated it when I was a kid. It was, oh my God, this boring show is on Channel 11 again. And it wasn't until I was in my early teens that I started to sort of appreciate it, even though I had been seeing it since I was like six years old, you know? And aside from the animated series on Saturday mornings, because it was there, um, I was not the hugest Trek fan. But then I came to appreciate it because of the ideas that it espoused, because I was ready to accept them. I was ready to recognize them. And I feel like it's a mistake to say we're going to make Star Trek to bring in the young kids. I feel like the, the young kids will eventually come to Star Trek when they're a little older because it will start to speak to them on their level instead of shoehorning it into something that they might consume anyway everything right. you said makes sense soapbox done <laughs> <laughs> all right folks well we're going to wrap this one up uh neek where can folks find you elsewhere on the interwebs you can find my star trek recaps at super and you very much should uh chris I am a host of the Quantum Leap Podcast, quantumleappodcast.com. Awesome. And Tom, I think you and I are similar in like, this is where you can find us on the internet. <laughs> Here and occasionally on uh, the Infinite Potato Podcast or Super Fan Talk, sorry. A cosmic Potato. Whatever the name is. Yeah. Cosmic. We, we have, <laughs> I, yes, of those yes, we have... <laughs> Too many potatoes. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's true. And speaking of too many potatoes, Scott, <laughs> that segue makes no sense, but it sounded fun. It, it does not. Not even a little bit. <laughs> um, you can normally find me hosting this very podcast right here. Uh, but, hey, I had shit going on tonight. So so I, I asked Rick to do it. Um, but aside from this, you can find me occasionally on Cosmic Potato every once in a while on Captain Game Show. And outside of the podcasting world, you can see some of my graphic artwork on my website at www.planetrisecreative.com. Thank you very much. And thank you all for joining uh, joining us tonight. Thank you, folks, for listening to us tonight, today, or whenever we're getting into your ear holes. And from all of us, to all of you, have a wonderful week and we will talk to you next week when the episode tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow will be our topic of discussion so well uh all right goodbye i'm done